And uh, among the things uh, being compromised in the days in which we live is the Bible itself. Now, there are those who tend to, to criticize, who tend to discredit the Bible, who try to pass it off as a forgery or a simple uh, writings of uh, the Jewish people, something of this kind. And the uh, uh, ideas among uh, many young people, uh, in especially in colleges and universities, is that you're a little bit peculiar and a little bit old-fashioned and square if you uh, put very much trust in uh, the Bible, and especially if you read it and study it. Now, we believe that the Bible is our means of hope, or our hope is revealed to us in the Bible, and in its words uh, to be found the words of eternal life. Now, you know that the Bible, mankind, has not always had the Bible in its present form. But the Bible has had a long and interesting history. And we believe that if we know something about the history of the Bible, uh, some of the things that it's gone through and coming to us in its present form, and some of the things that the people have gone through in, in bringing the Bible to us, uh, we believe that we will have a deeper appreciation and a stronger love for the Bible itself. Now, the word Bible, as you perhaps know, is taken from the, uh, uh, I believe it's a Latin word, Biblia, meaning books. And the Bible consists of 66 books written over a period of 1,500 years by a number of different writers of different background, of different professions or, or calling in life. And yet, though these people did not know each other for the most part, and though they wrote over a long period of time, there is perfect and complete harmony in their works. Each one presented a harmonious picture with the others. Now, there is only one explanation for this, really, and that is the fact that the Bible, the words that they wrote, were inspired by God, or that they were inspired by God to write these things. Now, some of the versions of the Bible include the Apocrypha. Now, this is included, you will find, in the DeWay, or Catholic Bible. But actually, the 66 books that we have in the authorized version are the only ones that all scholars are agreed upon that should be included in the actual Bible or the Word of God. As a matter of fact, some of these other books that are included in the Apocrypha have such uh, outlandish accounts of uh, what Christ is supposed to have said and done that obviously on the face of it they do not belong with the others. But many have questioned also the authenticity of the Bible, period feeling that uh, there isn't the, the Bible is not reliable, that it is simply the works of man and may be fictitious in many of its aspects. But, you know, in, in recent years, or by recent years, we mean uh, within the last century, perhaps, or even a little more. But in the last century, and, and particularly in the last 50 years, there have been many archaeological discoveries in the Middle East, in the Bible lands, that have confirmed the truth and the authenticity of the Bible. Now, one of the best examples that we know of is uh, in the case of the Hittite people. 
Now, you know, uh, the Hittites or was a people mentioned in the Bible. They were mentioned in the time of Joshua, and they were mentioned again in the time of David. And you find them uh, being mentioned quite a, a number of times in the Bible. But for some reason or another, uh, they fail to get recorded in uh, secular history. There is no mention made in secular history of the Hittite people. Therefore, the higher critics, so-called, of the Bible, pointed with pride to the fact that, look here, uh, this is definite proof how unreliable the Bible is and what a little the Bible writers knew about the affairs of their day because they have written about a people that didn't even exist. That was the attitude that the higher critics took was that there were no Hittite people. History, secular history makes no mention of them, therefore they did not exist. So this proved to them how unreliable the scriptures were. But, sure enough, uh, in the year of 1887, uh, in Egypt, there were some 300 clay tablets uh, found uh, of uh, dating back to about 1500 B.C., uh, that when they were uh, properly uh, interpreted, translated, and understood, that they gave a full account of a, a very strong people in the Middle East of antiquity called, you guessed it, the Hittites. So uh, this then brought the words of the critics, their own words, upon their heads, because uh, here was proof positive that the Hittites existed and that they did and, and were exactly the kind of people that you would gather from the description of them that we read in the Bible. So this is just one of the examples of how the reliability of the Bible is, should not be questioned, but how it has been proven uh, repeatedly by these archaeological discoveries in the Bible lands. <clears throat> and not once has proof been unearthed that has disproven any part of the Bible. That is, when all the evidence is properly evaluated and understood. Now, before we consider the, the writings of the Bible itself, we might uh, talk a little bit about writings generally in ancient times. Now, one of the earliest forms of writings that we know anything about was the <coughs> Egyptian hieroglyphics, which was a pictorial representation, as you know. And of almost equal antiquity with the Egyptian hieroglyphics was the uh, cuneiform or wedge-shaped inscriptions of Babylon and the Assyrians. Now, while these, uh, as far as we know, the Bible itself was not written this way, uh, these do prove as uh, value, valuable proof for uh, the authenticity of the scripture, <clears throat> because many of the same incidents has been recorded and these writings, especially the cuneiform writings, that the Bible gives, and they correspond perfectly, as we have said. Now, the Bible school manuscripts, or rather the Bible manuscripts, were commonly written on parchment or vellum. Now, this is writing material made from the skins of animals, such as sheep, calves, and antelopes. And the finer material uh, of the two was called vellum. And this vellum was sometimes dyed purple, and when it was, the writing upon it was in silver or gold. Now, it appears that this is the type of material that the Jewish scholars took with them to Alexandria, Egypt, at the time that the Septuagint 
translation or version of the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew to Greek because Josephus describes the very fine material these scholars brought with them, and he mentioned the fact that Ptolemy, the Greek king in Egypt, how he spent a good deal of time admiring the material that uh, was written upon and the beautifully formed gold Hebrew letters there. So evidently, the Hebrew scholars carried their law into Egypt written on vellum and uh, written in gold letters. Now also, in Egypt, a material called papyrus was used. It uh, grew, it was a plant, and it could be processed and made into quite fine and very durable writing material. And it's interesting to note in this connection that the word parchment seems to have originated from the Scythian Asia Minor of Pergam, or Pergamos, where one of the ecclesias was located that was a subject of uh, John's uh, discourse uh, on the Isle of Patmos. And at least uh, uh, parchment was used quite extensively there because at one time one of the Ptolemies in Egypt refused to allow papyrus to be exported for use anyplace else outside of Egypt. Now when we come to consider the ancient manuscripts, uh, scriptural uh, manuscripts or writing, we know that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek. And uh, none of the original manuscripts that was written by the, the original Bible writers is known to exist today. They have all, of course, been destroyed by time and war and flood and fire and, and whatnot, so that none of the original, when we talk about the original manuscripts or the original writings, we mean the language that they were written in rather than the original manuscripts themselves. And until very recently, it was thought that the oldest Greek manuscripts dated back to the 4th century A.D., and it was thought that the oldest Hebrew manuscripts dated back to the 10th century B.C. But, of course, in, in more recent times, the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls have changed this idea. We know now that some uh, dating back to slightly before Christ uh, are now in existence. <coughs> But these manuscripts were written, as we have indicated, uh, primarily on parchment or vellum. And they were written, of course, printing was not, uh, had not been invented when we go back far enough. That belongs to the 15th century. But we go back to the time of Christ, for example, we find that these manuscripts were written by people called scribes. You know, you remember the scribes and the Pharisees of Christ's day? Well, the scribes were those who wrote and reproduce copies of the scripture. Now, they were called scribes after the Latin word scribo, meaning I write. And what they wrote was called manuscripts because it was handwritten. And that's the meaning of the word, manuscripts, handwritten. And the uh, scriptures themselves means writings. Holy scriptures is holy writings. Now, there were uh, certain problems that were encountered uh, in the transcribing or rewriting of these manuscripts that people encountered when they uh, were engaged in this. One of the things was the uh, way they were composed. Now, the early Hebrew scriptures were written in consonants only. There were no vowels in the early scriptural or he early Hebrew writings. The vowels were added to the Hebrew scriptures in the 7th or 8th century uh, A.D. by a group of people called the Masoretes. 
And with the consonants only in these words, of course, they could be mixed up. They could be misunderstood, as you know, in the wrong words, and with completely different meaning could be adopted or used. And then when we come to the Greek manuscripts, those that were written in Greek, we find that they were of two types, and they were called the unicals and the cursives. Now, the unicals are the ones we'll consider mostly because they were of more ancient origin, and the cursives were written in writing more, uh, would resemble more the kind of writing we use. The, the word cursive means running, so they were written in a running uh, type of hand or writing. But the unicals, as would be suggested by the una, uh, was written with only one kind of letter, that is, all capitals. They were written strictly every word, I mean every letter in every word was a capital, and there was no space between words. Now this created quite a problem, as you can imagine. If you were not quite familiar with what was being written or what the subject of the material was, you didn't know where one word ended and another one began. Now, there's a rather amusing little incident that's sometimes uh, recalled in this connection to illustrate uh, how uh, simply by the changing of one letter and getting it in the wrong place in the front of a word instead of the end of the other word could completely change the meaning. Now, the incident that we have reference to is that at one time it is said that there was a, a man who did not believe in God. He, he didn't believe that God existed, and he felt that a belief in, in the existence of God was perhaps harmful. So he went into his son's room, and he wrote on, uh, on uh, a sign and hung in his son's room these words, uh, G-O-D-I-S-N-O-W-H-E-R-E. And he wrote them all in capital with no spaces between them. And to him this spelled, God is nowhere. Well, the little boy came in, and he looked at it, and he said, Oh, good, it says God is now here. So, so you can see how uh, just the changing of one letter could completely mix up the, the meaning of the words. So these are among uh, some of the problems that were encountered. <clears throat> and there was also the problem of properly transcribing the letters. Many of these letters, if you see them now, they look similar, and you can see that it would require an, an artist, practically, to reproduce these letters uh, as they should be so that they would be readily distinguishable one from another. But the Hebrew scribes were perhaps the most particular, well, they were the most particular, they uh, were very careful in, as to how they reproduced their scriptures. First of all, the skins had to be, that uh, the parchment or vellum had to be of a clean animal and was very carefully prepared. And uh, when they were transcribing, they, when they came to a word, they were required to pronounce it, each word, before they wrote it, so that they uh, were uh, as far or as free from mistakes as possible. And they were to be attired in the typical uh, or traditional Jewish costume when they were writing. And uh, when they came to any of the divine names, they were required to wash their pen and water before they wrote it. And when they came to the name of Jehovah or Yahweh, they were required to wash their entire body in water before they wrote that. So we can see that the Hebrews took this business of transcribing their scriptures quite uh, seriously, much more so than did the uh, uh, scribes of uh, other writing into to Greek or uh, Latin or any of these things. <clears throat> then we, we note that when the translators, now this comes later, but when the translators started working with these manuscripts, 
they did not always uh, agree one with another. So the translators, uh, it, was, it was necessary for them to decide which one was authentic, which one really said what the original Bible writer meant to say. Now there's quite a list of rules that has been adopted by the translators for this purpose, especially by the, those back in the last century who uh, revised the uh, Bible and it's the uh, revised American uh, edition. Now we're not going to uh, name all of those rules for you or list them, but we might mention a few of them. The first thing is, the first general rule that uh, we would uh, take note of is the fact that uh, for the most part, mistakes can be picked out by a scholar, Just he can put his finger on them just like that, because the mistakes were of later origin than the writing, and the scholars know pretty much the, the style of writing of the day that it was supposed to be. And if anything has found its way in there that didn't belong, they can spot it pretty quick. Now, this is a, a rather uh, a ridiculous example, but suppose uh, you were writing or reading uh, the life of George Washington, and it said in there that George got in his Cadillac this morning and drove up to the White House. Well, uh, nobody would have to tell you that's a mistake, because you know they didn't have Cadillacs in the days of George Washington. Well, now this is the sort of thing that the, the scholars in translating the Bible can pick up uh, right away. This is one of most mistakes can be weeded out without, without any particular rule. But another rule that is followed is the older manuscripts are generally considered to be more reliable than the more recent ones. And when there are two readings in the scripture, uh, if one is longer than the other, the shorter is considered more authentic and more reliable because it is felt that insertions in the manuscripts is more probable than omissions. Then another uh, rule of uh, proving the authenticity of a particular passage comes from a rather odd source, at least it's odd as far as we're concerned, and that is from the early church leaders, now in the uh, first, second, and third centuries along there. Now, uh, the reason we say that's odd is because we know this is where the truth, the real saving truth, was uh, uh, compromised and error began to come in. And the people that brought the error in are the ones that furnish for us now proof of the authenticity of certain manuscripts. And the way they did it is this. They oftentimes quoted from manuscripts that were in existence at their day, in their day and perhaps dated back to the time of Christ. Well, now... Uh, those manuscripts have been lost. We don't have them, but their words have been recorded in history. So uh, now apparently they hadn't, they weren't quite uh, sagacious enough to think of changing the scripture yet. So what they read was authentic. And when their words have been preserved, and they have been in secular history many times, so that is one way we know now manuscripts, later manuscripts that agree with. Uh, their words that they read from earlier ones, they're considered authentic. Now, one of the uh, examples here, we may not be making this very clear, but there's quite a bit of controversy uh, developed at this time, as you know. And these people would quote the scripture to try to prove their points. Well, now, if we find uh, something uh, in a manuscript in a later time that was never quoted by any of those people of the first and second centuries, 
then we conclude that it wasn't there. Now, uh, a very good example of this is 1 John 5, 7. Now, you will recognize or remember, perhaps, that 1 John 5, 7 says that there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Well, uh, along about the, uh, at least by the time that Constantine came to the throne in Rome in 312 or 13, the Trinity was a, the doctrine of the Trinity was really being uh, discussed, and it was a real argument. There, there was no, it wasn't a one-sided thing, but it was a real contest here. Well, now, uh, uh, perhaps in our day, uh, a child of the first or second grade might say that's only been to Sunday school a few times might say, well, I can settle that argument with one verse, 1 John 5, 7. And it wouldn't take any more than a first grade child to know that 1 John 5, 7 proves that there is a trinity, doesn't it? It says these three are one, and, and it puts it so that it proves it. But surprisingly enough, as hot as the argument in the second and third and fourth century was, never, never one time was this verse quoted to prove the theory of the Trinity. Why? Because it wasn't there. It wasn't in the manuscript they had at that time. Uh, this has been added later by the translators in an effort to sustain the doctrine of the Trinity. So the, the fact that it wasn't referred to in the uh, arguments that the bishops had during the time of Constantine and before and after is definite proof that it wasn't there. If it had been, they would have used it. And the very early manuscripts do not contain it. <clears throat> but in, in reality, uh, when we uh, really, in the final analysis, when all is said and done, the mistakes... Uh, that were made in transcribing the, the manuscripts over the years were very few, actually, and very inconsequential in reality. So we might, the reason for this undoubtedly is due to the fact that God gave his word in the beginning, and undoubtedly he has watched over it down through the years. And undoubtedly, he watched over it when these uh, scribes were, were uh, transcribing the scriptures and reproducing the copies. Otherwise, there would have been a lot more mistakes than there have been. Now, uh, proof of this, we far proof of this, we refer you to the fact that now there is more question about the correctness of the copies of Shakespeare than there is of the Bible. Now, Shakespeare's work has only been in existence some 300 years, and much of the Bible has been in existence almost 3,500 years, and the last of it was written about 1,900 years ago. Uh, and yet, uh, we know more about the correctness of the copy of the Bible than we do about Shakespeare. Now, this is an indication that when man is left to himself without the overriding hand of God to guide him, he can uh, uh, really make havoc of things, as they have with Shakespeare. Not that it's important, but we only refer to this to show you that, that when God is overseeing this, and the, the hand of God is behind the scenes directing manner, the matters providentially, then uh, the errors are kept at a minimum, and they can be eliminated entirely, of course, if God saw fit to do so. But we believe, then, that these errors in transcription were simply errors in transcription only. But the errors in translation 
we believe, have been much more deliberate and much more important. Now, so far, we have been discussing the reproducing of, or the reproduction of manuscripts entirely and not translation. And this has taken us chronologically down to the 15th century or the time of the invention of printing, the time of the printing press. Now let us turn our attention to the translation of the scriptures. And this takes us back chronologically to 280 B.C., when the time, the first, as far as I'm aware, that there was uh, the first translation from Hebrew into any other language was when the Septuagint version of the Old Testament was translated by the 70, or rather 72, Hebrew scholars that translated the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament into Greek. Now, it's commonly thought that the arrangements here was made by one of the Ptolemies, the Greek king of Egypt, because he was anxious to have the Hebrew scriptures for the very elaborate library that he had in Alexandria. And it is uh, commonly thought that the 70 or 72 Hebrew scholars that were brought, six from each of the 12 tribes from Jerusalem to Alexandria, to translate the scriptures. As a matter of fact, Josephus gives quite a detailed account of this, and he says that Ptolemy freed 120,000 Hebrew slaves that had been brought and enslaved there in Egypt. Uh, he did this to get on the good side, Josephus says, of the Hebrew scholars so that they would give him a good translation. But there are other accounts that say that the translation of the Septuagint was simply for the Jewish community in Alexandria. And there is some support for this. You might say, why would the Jews need the scriptures translated out of Hebrew into some other language? Well, actually, uh, they did have a need for this, because after the Babylonian captivity, Hebrew gradually ceased to be the language of the common uh, Jewish people. It became a sort of sacred language to them. It was a language in which their scriptures were written. And when the, the priests read the scriptures to them in Hebrew, they had to have a translator to stand between them and the priest. As a matter of fact, the common people took up another Semitic language at this period called Aramaic. And uh, remembering now that the uh, Septuagint was translated in 280 B.C., and by this time, approximately 200 years after the Babylonian captivity, many of the Jewish people had taken up Greek. So whether or not Ptolemy, king of Egypt, as is commonly thought, made arrangements for the translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, or whether it was simply done for the convenience of the common people in that area, at least the Septuagint was very widely used around the entire Mediterranean area during that period of time, because Greek was the uh, usual language. And now the Septuagint is the version that was in use in the time of Christ. And this is the version that, that Christ quoted from. You will be able to determine this if you look at some of the instances where Christ says, Thus it is written, and he quotes what was written. And if you read that from, if you go to the Old Testament and read that from the King James Version, there is no similarity at all uh, between the two. But if you go to the Septuagint Version and read that, you will find that it is like Christ quoted it. So the Septuagint is uh, the version of the Old Testament that was in use in the time of Christ. And after it had but once been, the scriptures, the Old Testament, had once been translated, then there, uh, there uh, were other translations and versions that soon appeared. In many cases, they were simply a revision of the Septuagint. 
Now, one of the early day, fairly early day translators, or man who worked with the translations, was Oregon. And he revised the Septuagint. He belonged to the third century. And ultimately, he uh, uh, issued what is called the Hexaplar, which, uh, as the name might suggest to you, contains six different translations or version of the Bible, all in one edition. Now, uh, of course, now we're coming down now with these people that were dealing with both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And Jerome is a translator that's well known, and he belonged to the 4th century. Now, he was said to have been the greatest scholar of his day, and, uh, and this may have been true, but we know him to be the culprit who uh, mistranslated the second verse of the 38th chapter of Ezekiel, and has made it rather difficult and uh, obscured the, the real meaning of that verse. If you look in the King James Version, you find that verse reading like this, uh, Gog of the land of Magog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Well, if you look in the Septuagint Version, it says Gog of the land of Magog, prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal. Now, the word here uh, in question is Rosh. That was in the uh, original. And it means chief or head, and Jerome felt that should be translated rather than being left in the original. But scholars nowadays recognize that it should not have been translated, so that it's much easier to associate the nation of Russia with this verse when we see it as it is in the Septuagint and as it should be rather than the way it is in the King James Version. But at any, any rate... Jerome was commissioned by uh, Damas, who is sometimes referred to as a pope, but the papacy didn't actually arise in the 4th century, so we would say a bishop in Rome, commissioned uh, Jerome to translate what is called the Latin Vulgate. It was called the Vulgate because it was in the common or vulgar tongue of the Latin people. And Jerome translated from the original into Latin, so that he translated the Old Testament from the original Hebrew into Latin, and the New Testament from the original Greek into Latin. And this was the, uh, what we now know, and this you must know about this translation or this version of the Bible, called the Latin Vulgate. This is kept in the Vatican and leaned on quite heavily by the church. But the, uh, at any rate, the Septuagint and the Latin Vulgate down through the centuries became to be quite a source of several versions and the uh, value, for the most part, uh, of these translations or versions of the Bible lies in the fact that both translations were taken and translated from manuscripts much older than any in existence today. But both have been revised many times, and errors have doubtless crept in. Now, a while after the time of Jerome, something else happened in the history of the Western world. That is the fall of the western half of the Roman Empire and the beginning of what has been called in history as the Dark Ages. Now, this is approximately from the 7th century to the 14th century. Now, during this time, as far as the Bible is concerned, or as far as, uh, as religion is concerned, the, thing, the, the distinguishing factor here is the fact that the, the papacy and the clergy in general ruled with such an iron hand over the common man they were real dictators. The common man had nothing to say about uh, his destiny, especially as far as any spiritual values were concerned. And the common man was, was greatly oppressed by the clergy during that period of time. 
And the clergy told the common man that the Bible tells me to do this, and uh, that there is a burning hell that you better look out for, and the only way you're going to save your immortal soul from a burning hell is to do what the clergy tells you to. That's what the common man was told during that time. And uh, the clergy, in order to justify this to those who knew better, they would say, well, yes, we know this isn't so, but uh, we're justified in telling the people this because no telling how mean they'd be if they didn't believe there was a burning hell in store for them. So this was the, the position they took. And this theory has come to be called in history, what? The pious fraud. Uh, and uh, this is uh, uh, Brother Williams wrote of the pious fraud. Well, this is what it was, the, the fact that the clergy passed off the theory of a burning hell on the public. Because the common man, why could they do this? Couldn't they read? No, they couldn't. The common man couldn't read. Uh, only the clergy could read, and the Bible was, for, uh, for instance, we go to England because that is where uh, our, most of our interest would be of us in this country. Well, the people spoke English, but the, the Bible was in Latin, and uh, they couldn't read it. They didn't know how to read it. As a matter of fact, there was a specific church law that the laity was not to have a Bible in his possession. And then about the 14th century, there is something else came about. Those of you who have studied history, and particularly English literature, know these terms very well, the Renaissance, and ultimately the Reformation. Well, now, during the, uh, the time of the Dark Ages, all thinking and studying and reasoning had, uh, was uh, stagnant, pretty much. There wasn't much going on. But at this time, there was a resurgence in many fields, in arts and literature and uh, writings of all kinds. And many of the clergymen began to see, they began to awake to the corruption and the oppressive attitude of the clergy and many of them, or some of them, we wouldn't say many, but some of them begin to feel that the common man in England, for example, should have the Bible in his own language so he could read it himself. But this was bitterly opposed by the clergy. The clergy says, no, do not give the common man the Bible in his own language. And why do you suppose they said this? Well, I think the reason is pretty obvious, because they knew that once the common man got the Bible, the scriptures, in his own language and could read it for himself, he could see that God did not intend for them to bear uh, iron rule over the common people. And um, uh, the common people would be able to see through this fa the falsehood and the fallacy of the pious fraud and all of these things. So the clergy bitterly opposed the translation of the Bible into English or to any language that could be read by the common man. But the first champion of the cause of the common man in England was John Wycliffe. Now, in defiance, absolutely, of the church and of the clergy in general, John Wycliffe translated the Bible into English, and it was published in 1382. Now, uh, this, of course, was produced by hand, and any copies of it that were reproduced had to be done by hand, so that it was quite expensive, and uh, not too many people could afford it. And it is said that some, some people were willing to give a load of hay for just a few chapters of one of the Gospels or something of this kind. Now, not all the people could read even English either, but there were those who could, 
But when they, <clears throat> when they had the Bible, or even a portion of it, they had to assemble in secret to read it and hear it read. And the people who had these copies of, of the Bible, of John Wycliffe's Bible, were hunted by the clergy like wild animals, because the, the clergy were bitterly, as we have said, now we can't overemphasize this too much, the clergy was bitterly opposed to the common man having the Bible and hearing it read in his own language, for the reasons we have mentioned. And it is said that some of in this period were burned to the stake with copies of the Bible hanging around their neck because of their insistence upon having it and reading it and hearing it read. And to give you some idea of the uh, violent way in which the uh, clergy opposed this sort of thing was that some 40 years after John Wycliffe's death, the clergy went in and dug up his grave. His bones were disinterred and burned in absolute shame and cast into the river Swift uh, as if this could change what had been done. This was a sort of a foolish thing, but it gives you some idea of how bitter and strong the opposition was to what Wycliffe had done in translating the Bible into English. But once it was started, of course, the clergy, although they were opposed, they could not stop it. Undoubtedly, this was the will of God, that the Bible should be uh, produced in English or in a language that the common man could read, because this was followed, uh, uh, Wycliffe was followed by other translators. William Tyndale was another one, Miles Coverdale, and Martin Luther in Germany translated the Bible into German so the common people there could read it. And uh, about this time we have the Reformation come into being. This was the uh, formation of the Protestant movement and the, the work of the Protestants. This is the period they belonged in. The work of Luther is in this period. And in 1534, Henry VIII split with Rome and the Church of England was formed. But there is one thing to remember now, that in the Reformation and the forming of uh, Protestantism, the, the problem wasn't doctrine. They, they didn't object to the, to the doctrinal teachings of the church, but they objected to the oppressive attitude of the clergy. That's what brought about the Reformation. But at any rate, we have the Bible then coming down to us somewhat in the form that we have now, not exactly. But another contribu contributing factor to the producing of the Bible, as we now have it, at a price we can afford and in a language that we can read, was the invention of the printing press. And this took place about the middle of the 15th century. Now, it is usually thought that John Gutenberg was the inventor of printing, and he may have been, although authorities question now whether he was or not. Because, you know, at that period of time, the middle of the 15th century, these sort of things were considered the contrivance of Satan. And the inventor of something new like this could well uh, expect to be burned at the stake if his invention was discovered. So it is thought that printing probably was in existence a good long while before the time of Gutenberg, but uh, those uh, responsible for its invention were afraid to let it be known. But at any, word, at any rate, uh, the uh, printing press was developed, and it has brought the Bible into the hands of the common man. In fact, uh, the first English printer was William Caxton. Uh, he had brought his printing press to England in 1470. And his motto was two Latin words, fiat lux, 
this means let there be light. So uh, the printing press did contribute uh, a lot to the light of the scripture. And the first complete book that's known to have been published or printed by the printing press was what is called Gutenberg's Bible. This is also referred to as the 42-line Bible, and this was done somewhere between 1450 and 1456. But ultimately, the, uh, there came to be two Bibles, or we might say three Bibles, that were used uh, among the people. The Geneva Bible, which was translated by a group of uh, uh, people who had been forced to flee from England and found a haven of protection in Geneva, Switzerland. And while they were there, they translated a Bible, and it's called the Geneva Bible. That was translated in 1560. And during this time, since the Bible had been translated by, uh, against the wishes of the clergy, the clergy decided to translate their own Bible. So a group of bishops of the Church of England translated the Bible in 1568, and that was called the Bishop's Bible. So the two Bibles that were in use then in England was the, the Geneva Bible by the common people and the Bishop's Bible by the clergy. And a little later than this, the Catholic Church offered its own translation. This was called the DeWay Bible. The New Testament was translated in 1582, and the Old Testament in 1609 or 10. And this was translated from the Latin Vulgate of uh, Jerome. But in, in a period of time, the, there was considerable criticism leveled at the Geneva Bible and the Bishop's Bible both by the Catholic Church. So King James of Eng England authorized another translation of the Bible in the year of 1604. And in the year of 1611, this translation was published. And this is the one we have here. This is called the King James Version or the Authorized Version. And uh, this is the one that has been most commonly used by the English-speaking people throughout the world. Now, we know, as we have already referred to the fact that there are numerous errors in the King James Version of the Bible, we might say the truth is veiled in it. However, uh, providentially, there is, in the hands of the common people of today, if we use just a little bit of uh, effort, uh, we can, from this and from various concordances and different things that we have, we can ascertain almost exactly what was meant to be brought to us from the original and we should be very thankful for it because uh, mankind has not always had this privilege that we enjoy. Thank you.